Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Khreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Good morning, Joe. Good morning for me. Good morning, West Coast affiliate, Emily Jane Fox. Uh, how are you? When I say that we are literally podcasting from my pajamas, it is true mm-hmm. because we are coming to you first thing in the morning after the State of the Union. I uh, haven't even gotten out of pajamas yet, but this is how committed we are to really breaking it all down from Tuesday evening's big night for President Biden. And we are here with some of our favorite Hive friends, a real a real collection of who's who from the Hive. We have Abigail Tracy, we have Chris Smith, we have Eric Lutz. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for being here to break this all down with us. Good morning. Thank you for having us. It is Hive gone wild here on Inside the Hive. We have a lot of bees inside the Hive today. Abby, Chris, Eric, all of you have been on the Biden beat as of late. Eric wrote a fantastic uh, sort of roundup of what happened last night at the State of the Union. Abby uh, was involved in telling us about how this whole speech came together. You should go to Vanity Fair's Hive and you can read all that reporting. Chris, I know that you're in process. You're uh, drilling into the Biden White House and going to bring us even more about that. I think last night what we can say is that uh, Joe Biden came out uh, – he came out swinging. You know, but there was a lot of questions and doubts, anxiety. Who doesn't feel a little bit of anxiety when Joe Biden's about to come to the mic, right? You're like, oh, God, here it comes. Isn't 9 p.m. past his bedtime? I, I, I was worried, and a lot of those worries were alleviated. But, um, Eric, since you uh, wrote about it right off the bat, what was your sort of uh, primary takeaway last night? Yeah, it's always a little bit uh, nerve wracking when he starts ad-libbing a little bit. You don't want Joe Biden wandering off into no man's land. But he did really well. Uh, he sounded good even when he was improvising a little bit. You know, he he delivered the speech with a lot of vigor and gusto. Um, he made a lot of specific calls to action. He got Republicans to take entitlement cuts off the table in the debt ceiling debates. So there's a lot of positives. Obviously, I don't think it's going to change a lot policy-wise for the next two years. Uh, Republicans are very committed to obstructing him and, and investigating him. Um, but I think 
you know, looking ahead beyond that, I think it makes a strong case that Joe Biden is still in charge, still a good leader, um, capable of leading the Democratic caucus forward. Abby, you were in the room last night. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I actually was. It was my first time actually physically at the State of the Union, and it was a very interesting perspective. So when you're there as press, you're actually, uh, so you're up in the gallery, but you're behind the president and the vice president and the speaker of the house. So really your view is everybody else. So it was so fascinating to watch the room and kind of see the reaction. Whereas, you know, when you're watching it on television, you're really seeing the president, the vice president, Kevin McCarthy in this case. And it was just sort of fascinating to watch the ways in which Biden actually energized different parts of not only the Democratic caucus, but even the Republican caucus at times. And the reactions that you saw were very fascinating and telling. And I do think the one thing that I really picked up on sort of from that bird's eye view was the way in which Biden is comfortable with kind of being a little off the cuff and like reacting to the room in a way that I don't think you necessarily saw with Donald Trump. I think he could react well to applause and to cheers and things of that nature, but Biden sort of thrived on these moments where there was tension within the Republican caucus, um, you know, at these various points, whether it was, you know, obviously you mentioned the entitlements and Social Security and Medicaid and all that. But there were other moments, too. And it was sort of fascinating to watch the reactions to his reactions, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I I was thinking about that last night when, you know, when he improved, it was the most powerful. And Chris, I want to go to you because Last night, what I thought I saw was like the old poll, Joe Biden, the way he masterfully like baited them on the sunsetting, the Medicare and Social Security. Yeah. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's improv and there's improv. Yeah. They were certainly very well prepared, the Biden people, for the Republicans to act out, you know, (laughs) with good reason. There's a lot of recent history on that front. And they weren't specifically, as best I can determine, baiting them on the border or Social Security. But they knew somewhere along the line there'd be screaming and yelling and booing. And so they, you know, talk through, okay, how do do we make the most of that? And and Biden, you know, uh, the upside of being 80 years old and being in politics for your entire adult life, it's kind of like stand-up comedy. You know, you've you've learned how to deal with hecklers uh, or you don't get this far. You know, Abby's take on what was happening inside the room is is fascinating and has an importance and inside the ball game kind of importance. But the Biden people at this point, and probably for the next two years, care a lot more about the reaction outside the room. And, uh, you know, while we all watch the speech and obsess over uh, particulars, uh, voters, by and large, don't. Uh, you know, there are people with a lot of other things going on in their lives. So as I talked to Biden people this morning, they are a lot more excited and a lot more focused on what Gail King said this morning on her right. morning show. You know, what the, the editorial coverage is in Michigan. You know, I had Biden people pointing me to this 
dial test of voters uh, by a company called Navigator that does research on, on this kind of stuff of something like a dozen voters watching the speech in Nevada, you know, swing state, important state in the Electoral College. And the reaction there was strongly positive. So, yeah, a lot of legislation got passed last year. As Biden talked about, the the impact of that is only going to start to be felt in the next weeks and months. And they're going to be, you know, hammering that home literally He's out in Wisconsin today. Biden is at a, a union training site, you know, to talk about that money being spent and creating jobs. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks, and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash hive. That's mintmobile.com slash H-I-V-E. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Well, it's fascinating to hear just how dialed into how every specific thing is going to land and where it's going to land. And it makes me think of uh, just where things were placed in the speech last night. And the thing that stuck out to me most was abortion stuff was buried so deep in the speech and it happened for such a short amount of time. And knowing how important that was as a midterm issue, that was the, the policy thing that stuck out to me the most. Eric, I'm wondering if you felt the same and why you think that may have gotten such late and little play. Yeah, I think that 
not only abortion, but a lot of the issues that I think animated the the November midterms were buried. Uh, he talked about attacks on democracy very late in the speech as well. And those two things are really intertwined. Um, you know, I think Biden was looking forward to some extent in trying to make a pitch, as Chris said, um, you know, he's speaking before the assembled lawmakers, but he was also speaking beyond them to the electorate, um, which obviously cares about those issues, but I think knows where he and Democrats stand on them. And I think is trying to really set a contrast with Republicans on a variety of different issues over the next two years when you're not going to see a lot of action um, at the federal level. And and the specifics of policy matter, whether it's insulin prices or abortion laws. The Biden people at this point believe the broader, not subliminal, it's an overt message. The message they're sending is, here's what we stand for. We are Joe Biden and the Democrats, uh, the adults in this room, in this government. And we can get things done and we're competent and look at them. They won't tell you what they want to cut. They're just going to scream and yell. And that contrast, you know, in individual races in the midterms worked beautifully for Democrats. And you're going to see a lot more of that over the next two years. Yeah. It's interesting what you said, that they expected the yelling and screaming and that he was prepared for it because it's a microcosm of what he did in the midterms and what he did in 2020. Like, you know, they're going to let them swing and I'm going to sort of jujitsu this thing and like let them let it come back on them and I'll be the adult in the room. Um, Abby, what did you want to contribute there? Yeah, no, absolutely. To both of your points, I think in the room, there was a very strategic, almost cadence to the nature of the speech. I think he really led off with those bipartisan issues or those, you know, those topics and those policy points that Republicans also had to get behind. So in the room, you sort of had this environment where certainly Democrats are getting up and cheering, you know, basically at every sentence all the time. But the way in which the speech was crafted, it really felt smart on the part of Biden and Biden's people in that it led with these kind of bipartisan or sort of universal views, values, and all that. You know, what are what are Republicans going to do when they say, let's support our seniors? Like, they have to stand up. You know, they get up. And it was throughout the speech, especially in the front half of it, there were a lot of moments where Republicans almost would have looked foolish, would have looked callous had they not stood up. And what I really think happened sort of by nature of that, um, and again, you know, this is something where, you know, maybe it wasn't clear if you were watching it on C-SPAN or things like that, but I think it created a environment within the chamber wherein then later in the speech when he touched on things like the border, when he touched on things like China or foreign policy – it almost made the outbursts that you did see from some members of the Republican caucus like all look all that much more foolish and ridiculous because of sort of the way in which he kind of stacked the deck up front um, as, you know, Joe Biden, like working across the aisle type guy. And you really sort of felt that in the room. And then when you had, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene shouting, what was already going to be a ridiculous performance became even more ridiculous, if that makes sense. Well, we'll get to the ridiculous performance aspect of it because I think we have to as much as I don't even want to give it airtime. But but you are painting this as such a masterclass and a, and a real layered stroke of strategy and 
I believe you because you're painting a really effective portrait there that I buy into. But it begs the question, if he is capable of that kind of political masterclass, why is he not doing that more? Why is this the first time we're really seeing President Biden come out with a strategically effective speech like this? We're now two years into his presidency. We're two years away from re-election. Is this really the first time we're going to see a glimpse of uh, a political stroke out in, in public like this, Eric? You know, I, I actually don't think it is the first time. I think he's a better speaker in these situations than he's often given credit for. We're, of course, all aware of the gaffes and some of the the not-so-great performances. Those really do stick out. But I, I do think that he thrives in, in these situations. And I think when he gets the bully pulpit, he does tend to use it. Um, that message isn't often heard, though. I think what's different here is it's a State of the Union address. It has... You know, even when we're when we're talking about our current media climate, where you're you're still getting a ton of people tuning into this, and it's being reported on on the morning shows, it's it's everywhere in a way that a speech on voting rights, for example, maybe isn't. So I think that he knew he had a much larger audience here, and to Abby's point, I think he did a great job of contrasting. Uh, what he's doing with with what Republicans are doing. And we saw that even in Sarah Huckabee Sanders' um, response, you know, it, it, kind of this fear and culture war stuff. And it really did stand in stark contrast to what Biden was talking about in terms of specific issues, specific proposals, and specific accomplishments. Well, just to connect those two things, the wackadoodle uh, – People in the audience, like uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, my favorite uh, description of her outfit last night was uh, Cuella Deville. Uh, but um, and, and even Kirsten Cinema, who shows up in her swanning around in her yellow outfit, you know, they're trying to get attention. But the nature of the speech and the way that he framed Biden framed things, it made them seem fringe. It made them seem like a, a clown show on the side. Right. And I think in a way that um, they played into his they fell into his trap. Right. Just like and that that to me goes back to this idea of Joe Biden as the master pole. I mean, he even though he first of all, he we as we know, he constantly plays on people's low expectations. Right. And and I also think, um, though, that the nature of the Congress we're in, there's not much either of them can accomplish without the other. And so the options seem to be play to the media and have fun getting attention uh, or try to do something with Biden, right? And he basically, in advance of the 2024 uh, campaign to come, has framed that debate. He's saying, you can either play uh, ball with me and we can, and you can actually go to voters and say you got something done or you can play these games, right? And in a way, he, he set that uh, debate up last night. Yeah, and and a, a part of that that uh, I'm curious how Abby's view uh, how it came across, but to your point about Biden, you know, being an old Paul, his attempts to stroke and schmooze Kevin McCarthy, I found fascinating and hilarious. You know, they probably don't have much hope of moving McCarthy and the House Republicans uh, in terms of policy. But that's Biden. You know, he is going to try to establish a relationship with McCarthy and, you know, see if he can seduce him even a little bit. 
And, you know, the bigger picture thing to, to get back to that point about, you know, why haven't we, Emily was asking, seen or heard more of this from Biden. You know, you all talked to, I, want, I keep wanting to call him Chris Whittle, Chris Whipple um, yeah. last week about his book and about how Ron Klain in particular was very conscious of using Biden strategically, not letting him go out there everywhere and campaign during the midterms, but concentrating his uh, appearances. Part of that is damage control. You know, the more Biden's out there, the more goofy things he's going to say. And part of it is the less he's out there, you know, the more we pay attention, right? You know, if they they focus his big moments and, and try to aim them at the larger targets, you know, they think they're going to have a bigger impact. Yeah, so uh, you you all make really great points. I think one thing that was sort of fascinating, um, it goes back to this idea of an exercise in contrast, right? You know, the exercise in contrast between Biden and, you know, Democrats and the Republican Party. But one of the most interesting conversations I actually had came from something of a surprising source after the State of the Union. So afterward, you know, everybody kind of goes to Statutory Hall. You have all these TV cameras and microphones and lawmakers everywhere. And it was actually during an interview with Ryan Zinke, who's now, you know, a Republican congressman from Montana. He is also an individual who resigned mid-scandal as Secretary of the Interior under Trump. So he's not necessarily somebody that you think of as being uh, the most state or the most level-headed um, of the lawmakers out there. But he really had commentary when asked about other members of his caucus and sort of their behavior during Biden's speech. You know, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others, you know, it wasn't just her, other other folks had outbursts and said things. Um, and he was really, he made the point that, look, here you have within this new majority, this new Republican majority in the House, about half of those members have never served in the majority before. And also their time in Congress, for many of them, you know, a lot of these newer members was defined by COVID. They weren't really interacting with their colleagues in person. They weren't, you know, necessarily in person in these types of settings to the same degree that some of these other politicians are, you know, like a Joe Biden. Whereas for Joe Biden, you know, a State of the Union address and sort of understanding the pomp, the circumstance and sort of the decorum of it all is something he knows like the back of his hand. For somebody else, you know, their calculus, you know, sending a tweet, they don't necessarily realize how different it is, you know, when you're inside that chamber and sort of what your behavior looks like. And I think Kevin McCarthy, given the statements that he made ahead of the State of the Union, you know, regarding, you know, we're not going to engage in childish games, I'm not going to tear up a speech, all of this, it really felt more like a message to his caucus than to like anybody else. And I think you saw on his face during the speech on a couple of occasions, almost like a disappointment or just like a cringe with the reaction. And I think Biden and his team, this is their arena. This is where they know how to perform. This is where he knows how to be, you know, that that senator from Delaware, you know, that vice president, all of it. And I think that was really, really on display last night. And I also think sort of looking ahead you also, on the other side of the aisle, have a number of um, Democrats who have never been 
in the minority either. And one of the most fascinating takeaways for me was when I was watching, you know, some of the more, quote unquote, firebrand members of the Democratic caucus, the squad, you know, the AOCs, Rashida Tlaib, some of the newer members, Jamal Bowman, they were actually some of the Democrats most enthused by the speech. You know, they were standing up and cheering and clapping. And I think not only did Biden very effectively kind of neutralize some of the Republican response and attacks, I think he also still managed to energize a group of Democrats who are now finding themselves in a very unique position in the in the minority for the first time. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, for the first time in about six years, we remember that the State of the Union is actually like a, a majestic event, right? It, it, whether or not you agree with things that are being said in that hall or policies that are happening down the road in the White House for the rest of the year, uh, it's an evening of pomp and circumstance, and it always kind of makes me proud to be an American. I love watching it. I've always loved watching it, even when I have not been the biggest fan of the person in the White House. So I, I think that this is a reminder for everybody that this is a powerful office. This is a true working democracy. And it's just, it's it's cool to watch the ceremony of it. And we haven't had that in a really long time because Trump's version of this was not this. And uh, I had a very different feeling to it. I want to talk about the moment where President Biden really backed Republicans into a policy corner last night. Uh, Eric, can you walk us through that sort of masterstroke in backing Republicans into a corner? Yeah. So um, it was one of those seemingly improvised moments that, that really did work for him. You know, for for weeks now, we've had this standoff between Democrats and Republicans over the debt ceiling with Republicans broadly saying that they want cuts, but being also unwilling to say what those cuts are and really expecting Biden to sort of name the terms for them. Um, much of what their their plans would seem to hinge on would be uh, cuts to Social Security, Medicaid. And, you know, as Biden acknowledged, that isn't necessarily an official per se policy position of the party, but enough members, enough high ranking members have floated it and the the plans that they've laid out don't really work without those kinds of cuts to uh, entitlements. So, um, in his speech, Biden talked made mention of that and talked about how, you know, he would protect these things and that Republicans want to uh, want to cut. And Republicans started yelling, "You lie!" and and basically loudly announcing their opposition to any kind of entitlement cuts. To which he said, "Great, I agree. We all are in agreement." So, you know, this thing that they've really been kind of doing this careful dance on for a few weeks now, really in, in the loudest way and on the biggest possible stage, um, they seated ground him in, in this debate. It was, it was really fantastic because again, this is a party that has been, uh, very comfortable in the minority saying what they're opposed to, but not really what they're for. 
and this was a great way of pinning them down. Yeah, I love a conversion. He said that was like a, a great little, uh, great little line uh, when and when he gets them to stand up for seniors. It was just kind of like a um, masterstroke. Uh, Chris, yeah, you know Biden had a good night, yet MAGA is real. You know, and we're going to find out in the next two or so years how much it's tied to Trump personally. But it elected a bunch of those members to the House who are now going to create a lot of mischief. And as as much as Biden may have won the moment last night, you know, over the next couple of months, it's it's not hard to see this whole debt ceiling thing crashing and burning. And right now, Biden and the Democrats are are trying to preemptively place the blame on the Republicans. But historically, when things big things go wrong, you know, the guy in the White House gets a lot of the blame. And as well as things went in the midterms in November, as well as things went last night, and it's a little early to, you know, pull the exact reaction. You know, Biden's approval ratings are still seriously underwater. You know, as crazy as the Republicans have been, Biden is not terribly popular, even with Democrats. So they know they're working uphill here. And, you know, Biden had a good night last night. He's got to keep it up for the next two years. That's a great point. Before the speech, I saw AOC talking to CNN and, and talking about these very specific, like small things that that she hopes to get done, even in the minority, right? You know, getting things through on amendments, finding four Republicans who can agree on some specific but narrow thing, right? They're not promising the world, they're promising the small incremental action, which is something we didn't really see as much from the GOP minority. Um, but of course, the chaos that the Republican majority can bring is much louder than all of that, right? So I think that it, it is easy to get swept up in what a great midterm it was or what a great speech he gave last night. But two years of chaos is going to pile up on top of all this and bury it to some extent. Um, how much it shines through, I think, remains to be seen. But I think I think that is the risk here is that we have two years of this loud yelling when Biden isn't holding the microphone. I think it's... Interesting to think of Biden's approval rating being so low, and I agree with you that we don't know where it's going to go in the next two years, but his approval rating was fairly low in November when we saw a big midterm win. So I I do believe there is some sort of disconnect with his polling and what actually people feel about him and what they do in the voting booth. I don't know that that's a good barometer because it wasn't a good barometer just a few months ago. But I did see a poll yesterday, and I'm going to get the specifics wrong, but it was a poll about... Trump versus Biden, and it was way more strongly in favor of Trump than I would have thought. Um, maybe that is my own personal viewfinder of just not even considering Trump an actual contender in 2024 from the people I talk to and just my own uh, spidey sense here. But the, the numbers were staggering to me. I don't know if anyone else saw this poll or had this reaction. Well, I've seen that. I've seen headlines about that poll, which I, you know, my views on polls at this point 
are, you know, taken with a grain of salt, especially at this juncture, right? I do feel like the State of the Union last night was a little bit of a victory lap from the midterms and that where, uh, you know, Democrats have to savor this moment because it's only going to get more uh, turbulent from here on out as as we can probably sense, right? But I do want to ask you guys, as to, let's just do a poll right here in our little beehive because we have so many hivers here. Um, I'm always trying to measure uh, from looking at things like that where we are in turning the page on Trump. You know, I mean, the, the obviously Kevin McCarthy uh, needs to keep Trumpism at bay in order to get his house in order, right? And that's something that Pelosi and Biden were able to do with their progressive wing. But obviously, Kevin McCarthy has a huge challenge ahead of him on that. Um, and on some level, he has to, uh, there's two things at odds here, him keeping his house in order and Trumpism, you know, which has not worked for them. Uh, Chris, I, you're like uh, probably the most skeptical of our reporting crew here, which I like. But I mean, where do you see the health of MAGA at this point? You know, as as many negatives as there's been in the past six, nine months, whether it's investigations of Trump, whether it's midterm losses, whether, you know, it's him basically not leaving Florida. He remains to a lot of people an electrifying, motivating president or presence, excuse me. You know, he, he and got president, how, probably. Yes. He, <laughs> you know, 80, however many million people voted for the guy. And that doesn't go away overnight. You know, DeSantis, for as much attention as he's gotten lately, is still an unknown to a lot of people. The Biden people certainly believe Trump can win a Republican primary and can win a general election. So, you know, that to me is the greatest indicator. And let me just note that last week, uh, Chris Whipple, uh, who wrote the Biden book, said that the Biden people are acting like Trump is going to be the candidate. They're gaming it that way right now. So they're they're on that side. They're with you on that. I mean, that that Trump is not to be underappreciated. Right. And perversely, it's it's good for Biden if Trump is the nominee. Right. Yeah. Because he neutralizes the age thing to some extent. Right. He, you know, turns out Democrats. uh, So in their ideal world, Trump is the Republican nominee in 24. I think when you actually are looking at Trump and Biden, it's almost two sides of the same coin for, you know, each party. Obviously, these are two very different individuals, very two very different politicians. You know, Trump has a incredibly tight grip on his party's base, of course, you know, Biden doesn't necessarily have that, you know, he's grabbing at, you know, a different part of, um, you know, the electorate than Trump is per se. But I think for both of them, it always comes back to this idea of who's the alternative. Is there an alternative? People will have a conversation about Biden and they're like, can he run again? You know, he's already old, you know, we need somebody else, we need fresh blood, but it's until there's a viable alternative to him, it's still going to be him. And I think you see the same thing with Trump on the other side. You know, obviously there's still, there's a lot of buzz, a lot of talk around Ron DeSantis. Then you have a couple other folks in the mix, you know, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, et cetera, but he's still an untested 
candidate. You know, we've had reporting from many of our colleagues kind of saying that when you really shine the spotlight on Ron DeSantis, he doesn't have that thing, that it factor that Trump does have, you know, that does manage to energize, you know, this swath of the country. And so I think for both of them, they will always be almost, you know, the presumptive uh, nominee for either party until there's really a alternative to either of them. What DeSantis does have is he has a little bit of the Marjorie Taylor Greene quality Mm -hmm. to him, and that doesn't play well against Joe Biden. We saw that last night. And so if that is the thing that he has going for him when put up against the current president, uh, we've we've sort of gotten a little glimmer into it, and it doesn't look good for the Republicans. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I think the poll you were referencing earlier was a Washington Post poll, and the head-to-head Trump-Biden numbers were interesting. Maybe more unnerving, certainly to the Biden people, were the indicators in that poll that a rerun election, you know, would turn off a lot of people. You know, Mm. Trump, Biden, too, might be a relatively low turnout election, which is not necessarily uh, where the Biden people want to play. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that to Abby's point, I think a lot of the potential Republican contenders all sort of have Jeb vibes to me. And, and if you have too many of these candidates, they're going to cancel each other out and, and Trump is going to become the nominee just like he did in 2016. Um, you know, I, I I do think that Biden would obviously prefer uh, to run against Trump. And I think that Trump would probably lose in 2024. But, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical about this idea that, that Trump is is dead or that Trumpism is surviving without Trump. You know, a majority obviously opposes him, um, or maybe not obviously, but but seems to oppose him. But there's still a huge market for what he's selling. And I think it's especially easy for him to sell it in this kind of siloed media climate. I, I am always concerned about the idea of getting too comfortable uh, with a, a Trump candidacy. Um, it, it just, it freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he, you know, we, we, it remains to be seen where he, whether he can um, freshen himself up, whether he can reappear uh, with a new super Trump template that reanimates people, right? Um, or makes him seem like he's now more reasonable somehow, you know, which I don't think is even a possibility. So I will take the position of being hyper skeptical of MAGA and, and Trump return. I think he's, I think he's done, cooked. So uh, I'll just take that position just because you guys are being so skeptical and probably right anyway. Um, I think this has been a fabulous uh, time having you all here in the uh, Hive Gone Wild sort of scenario. I love this. I like everybody uh, being in here, chiming in. Emily, uh, hasn't it been fun to have our um, Biden Super Bowl party here? I wish we could have State of the Union every week now because I, I want to get to break it down like this. Um, but certainly we will do this next year and I'm sure times in between. I am so grateful for all of your voices and minds here. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of It's at the Hive. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hi. 
I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts.